Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, we've heard your word read, and now we pray that we could hear it taught faithfully through your servant. And yet we know that no amount of study or reading or praying or anything can move us in a direction that you don't want us to go. We want you to move us where you want us to be. So may these words touch our hearts, touch the deepest part of who we are, so that we are inspired to be more like Christ, to more deeply invest in the people around us, especially people who have yet to meet Christ. God, open our hearts, open my heart to what you want this word to say to me and to all of us. And may the words of my mouth and the things that we consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I forgot to mention earlier, but if you're visiting with us, love to have you fill out this welcome card. If you put your email on there, we will be in touch with you via our newsletter, and that way you can know what's going on around Bethany. I always want to know what's going on around Bethany. It is great to be here with you this morning. We are continuing in our sermon series called Encounters with Christ, and this week's encounters is actually a pair of encounters, and it's all about desperation. It's about trauma, and it's about desperation. And so I want to just pause for a minute and ask all of us, when was the last time you experienced feeling desperate? I had to think for a really long time about the last time I felt desperate, which says something. By desperate, I mean you are out of your depth. There is no power within you to achieve something. You're trying, you're reaching, you're hoping that something will happen, you want a new job, you're trying to start a new relationship, you're hoping to move, and it is beyond you. And you've come to the end of your will, of what you can make happen. I think that's a way for us to sort of enter into this idea of desperation. When was the last time you were desperate? You were desperate for something. For me, uh, there have been times since then, but a a place of deep desperation for me that God used powerfully in my life was uh, after I finished college. Uh, I've told this story before, but I was an English major in college, which is pre-unemployment. And I set off on my job search right after college, and I got nothing for about six months. It was an arduous process. And so if you are in the middle of a job search, like, I got you, we can pray together, like, it's a big deal. And I always felt like the, the image that came to my mind when I was unemployed was everybody else is sort of in the, on the other side of this glass wall. And I would love to be on the other side of the wall, but I'm out here because I don't have a job, and I can't contribute. It was really frustrating But desperation came when I started to realize, like, man, I I don't qualify for anything. I was fresh out of college. I was 22 years old. Everybody was saying, you don't have the qualifications. You don't have the experience. And I'm going, yeah, duh, I'm a college student. Like, of course I don't have the experience. I had no power to affect my ability to come into a place of employment, at least at the places that I was trying to get into. And it was traumatizing, and I was desperate. And I'll say a little bit more about this later, but in my desperation, I actually was led by God, I think, to make a very good decision. I went to work at a place that I could never imagine myself working at. My first job after college was driving a delivery van for a commercial printing company. But God, in his mercy, provided some pretty amazing things for me in the midst of that. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. The point I'm trying to make is that we can come to a place of desperation, and we don't even know it. Like, I didn't know how much pain I was in, how traumatizing it was for me to keep coming to job interviews and to hear them say, well, no, it's not you. It's just you're not right for the job. And I'm like, really? It's not me? Like, come on. It's painful, and it's a form of trauma to keep getting rejected, to keep trying to find a way in, and we're not there. 
And our text is all about these moments of trauma and desperation. But this is such a challenge for those of us, I think especially who live here on the east side. I think it's really hard for us to relate to being desperate. The things that we need are one click away. Thank you, Amazon. The things that we would try to attain for ourselves, we've likely attained through our degrees, through our jobs, through the wealth that we've accumulated. I know that's not true for everybody. I'm using stereotypes. I'm painting with a broad brushstroke. But I had a hard time thinking of the last time I was desperate. Anybody else having a hard time thinking of that? The last time you're desperate for food, for your basic needs, for companionship? Sometimes it is very hard for us to relate to being desperate. And in a way, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is a huge problem. Because if we're not desperate, then what do we need Jesus for? What, what, what could he stand in that we can't stand in for ourselves? What could he provide that you and I can't simply click and bring about or do something for us miraculously? If we don't have the expectation that he is there with us and to meet those needs that we could never meet for ourselves, we will never be desperate and we will never come to the place of faith that I think these two examples teach us today. So the goal of today's sermon is not to run off and go make yourself desperate. The goal of today's sermon is to recognize that Christ is with us and he is with us in more surprising ways than we can imagine and his hopes for us are bigger than we could ever imagine. Today we're talking about desperation because we've been talking all summer long about the kingdom of God. This sermon series is called Encounters with Christ and what we've said is when we encounter Christ and when we see him, when he's present in our lives, we see the kingdom. And the kingdom is this amazing reality. It's happening right now. It's present right now. It's where God's rule and reign are active, where stuff is happening like God wants it to happen. That happens right now. And we are invited to step into that. And it is the future. It is when God comes at the end of time. Our kids are learning about this today in their Sunday school class. They're learning about Revelation. It's going to be awesome. They are learning about when God makes all things new. That is the coming kingdom. But there is a present kingdom. And especially when the people in the text we've been studying encounter Jesus, they see the kingdom. Where do we see the kingdom at work in our text today? We're going to look at three different headings. Uh, You can write down this outline in your bulletin. I apologize that it's not there for you this week. I hit the snooze button on my bulletin reminder, so there you go. The headings are, are this, 12 years of joy, 12 years of sorrow, and restoration. 12 years of joy, 12 Years of Sorrow and Restoration. The title of today's sermon is Two Daughters because there are two different women that are the keys to this passage who are daughters. One is the daughter of Jairus, a leader in the synagogue. Another one, Jesus gives the name daughter. So we're going to look at both of these women and see how their stories can teach us about this this dynamic between trauma and desperation. So let's begin by talking about 12 Years of Joy. Who's this person we're talking about? We're talking about Jairus' daughter. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the very beginning of our passage, verse 40 of Luke chapter 8. We never learn this young woman's name, but we learn a few things about her from the get-go in the text. We learn about her primarily through her relationship with her dad. Her dad, it says, is a leader in the synagogue. That just means he would have been a respected person in his community. Someone that other people would have looked up to, especially in his faith community, in the Jewish community. This is somebody that people looked up to and said, You're mature in your faith. You kind of get it. I would come to this person for counsel, for wisdom. And this man, Jairus, only has has an only daughter, and she has brought 12 years of joy to the life of her parents. How do we know that? Because if you're an only child, you know a lot of things, but you know you're special. You know that you are so important in the eyes of your parents. A lot of the only children I know would say, yeah, there's a whole lot of other stuff there too. But you know you are a treasure when you are an only child. 
So this young girl, 12 years old, she's a beloved daughter. She's brought 12 years of joy to her family. And now, when we meet her in the text, she is in the middle of a crisis. And we don't know how this has come about. We don't know if this illness was kind of a slow buildup and all of a sudden she got really sick. I'd like to think that it's more of like an immediate thing. Like she just kind of got hit by this thing. And in his desperation, Jairus, a leader of the synagogue, does something scandalous. He comes to Jesus. Now, why would that have been scandalous? Jesus did not have a good reputation as a rabbi. Remember, he hung out with drunks. He hung out with criminals. He hung out with people that in that tradition, people would have said, like, what are you doing? Like, why would you go there, right? And yet Jesus is the person that he turns to. Why? I think it has a lot to do with his hopes. We'll get into that in just a minute. But I want you to turn with me to maybe the darkest phrase in the whole passage. Turn with me to verse 49. This is Luke 8, 49. The text tells us, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, someone came from the leader's house, Jairus' house, to say, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. The worst has happened. Now, I've had friends who've lost children. I have not. This always makes me think of the Lord of the Rings when King Theoden, one of the heroes in the Lord of the Rings, loses a son in battle. And especially in the movie, it it is played up just so beautifully but so painfully Theoden is standing over this fresh grave. It's covered with little white flowers. His son is passed. He dies in battle. And he says this incredible line. He says, no parents should have to outlive their child. And it's a powerful moment because he's right. There is something disordered about the natural world that says we should not have to do this. Parents should grow old. Their children should have a long lifespan with them. We should be together. And there is something broken and wrong when a child passes before their time. And whether you're a person of faith or not, I think most people would tend to agree with that, that the order of the world is upset by the passing of a child. And in Jairus' case, it means his hope is gone. Because what he's been desperate for, remember, hope is tied to, or desperation is tied to what we're hoping for. What he has been hoping for can't happen because he's hoping for healing. He's hoping for his daughter to be restored. That'll come into play later on. Now, what do we learn from just this introduction? Very briefly, we can relate to the pain that Jairus is feeling. Don't go to the end of the story yet. I know we've read the end of the story. I know we can say what the end of the story is. But stay here for just a moment and think about that loss. Especially if it was like a ton of bricks. Especially if it just came out of nowhere. We have all felt loss like this. Have we not? If you've lost your job, all of a sudden you showed up for work and, oh my gosh, what's my boss doing in here? And who's this guy? And why are you holding those papers? If you have lost your job, suddenly and without warning, you have lost something. If you uh, have had your marriage go on life support because of infidelity, you know about this sense of loss because trust has disappeared. If a friend or a child or someone you love has been keeping a secret from you and all of a sudden it's out in public, you know this feeling of loss because your kingdom is crumbling. Every one of us has a little kingdom, right? We have God's big kingdom where things work like they're supposed to, where his rule and his reign are happening every day. And then every one of us, by God giving it to us in his mercy, has a little kingdom. And that can be your work, that can be your school, that can be your home life, but it's a place where what you want to get done is done, where your will is effective. The challenge of our kingdoms are they're really tiny and they're kind of puny. And stuff doesn't really work that well in our little kingdoms because our will is so limited. And trauma, when we have something taken away from us, like Jairus had his daughter taken away, wrecks our kingdoms. And desperation then 
is where we go to. But here's the good news of our thesis. Desperation leads to restoration in the kingdom of God. Jairus is desperate, right? When we meet him, he's desperate. He's even more distraught. He is spent by the time we get to verse 49. But what has he done early on in his trauma? Who has he invited into the conversation? This is like the easiest Sunday school answer, you guys. Jesus. Jesus has been with him from the get-go. He has turned to Jesus at the moment of darkness and deep need, and it got darker, and Jesus was still with him. It comes down to his inviting Jesus into that moment. That's a key. I think another key for us as a point of application is that when we've invited Jesus into a crisis, into a situation that we don't have control over, do we expect that our desperation will teach us something? Like when we're desperate for something, is that an opportunity for us to see something new, to have God reveal something to us that we weren't planning on? What if desperation swings wide the door for us to learn something about God or learn something about the kingdom that we never could have imagined? I mentioned uh, going to work for this commercial printing company after I finished college. Uh, I was very grateful to have a job. I did get the job because a friend of a friend worked there. And as I started my work there, I realized something. This was a really healthy company. This is where people spoke well of one another. This is where they encouraged each other. This is where the CEO would wander around and talk to people on the floor, and he'd go make sure the printing press was working, and he'd come chat us up, all of us delivery drivers kind of sitting around. The delivery drivers were actually very kind to me as a young college graduate. We used this ancient technology called key maps. Anybody remember key maps before there was Google Maps? So we had to look up where places were. I mean, it was astoundingly slow. And those guys were showing me how to use the key maps. They were showing me where to go. Oh, yeah, when you make a delivery there, don't forget the back door is over there. They were so good to me. And they didn't have to be. And a big takeaway for me in my moment of desperation was I saw how a company, how an organization that treated people well was really incredible to be a part of. It was really an amazing thing to step into. And so that has formed one of my key convictions as a leader. No matter what we accomplish, no matter what God has for us to do as a church, and as my role as a leader in this church, I'm going to do my best to treat people well, to try to honor people throughout the work that God has called us to do. I do not want to leave a trail of bodies behind us. No matter how big we get, no matter who we reach, I want us to be a church that has honored people and that has treated them well, as I was treated well at the printing company and in many other spots in my life? And did I expect that my desperation at trying to find a job would lead me to that place of conviction? No. I had no idea. I was just really glad to have a job and stop eating ramen noodles all the time. I found God teaching me something I wasn't expecting. How about you? In a place where you're desperate, in a place where you're kind of run out of hope, you're kind of done, Or maybe the worst has happened. Maybe the floor has fallen out from under you. Maybe you've lost your job. Is this not an opportunity for God to be teaching you something? And would you be open to receiving that? Okay, that's part one, talking about 12 years of joy. Now let's turn to 12 years of suffering. This is where we're talking about the woman who had hemorrhages, who suffered from bleeding. We're introduced to her in verse 43. So this structure for this passage is really interesting. We're introduced to Jairus and his daughter, All of a sudden, there's this little interlude in the middle with the woman experiencing hemorrhages. And then we come back to Jairus and his daughter in the end. It's kind of a framing device. It's fascinating. But listen to how the woman is introduced. The scene is set at the end of verse 42. As he went, as Jesus went along, the crowds pressed in on him. So he's heard about Jairus' need. He's surrounded by all these people who are calling out to him. And then verse 43 says this. Now, there was a woman who'd been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. 
And though she'd spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. Okay, what do we learn about her just in this very brief introduction? First, we learn, very key, that she's a woman. And in the ancient Near East, this is a patriarchal society. She would not have been considered to be a full citizen. She would have been considered to be property. I mean, second-class citizenship would be a generous term. And yet, this is just an important kind of note when you read through the Gospels. Luke, in his Gospel and in Acts, makes it very clear that women are incredibly important in the ministry of Jesus. He makes it abundantly clear that women have had roles in leadership, that women have been key in Jesus' ministry, that their role in the early church is so critical that it's hard to imagine the early church without women. And so this is just one of many notes that Luke puts out there of like, hey, pay attention to what God is doing here among women. Now, because this woman was part of the Jewish community, because she experienced this trauma of hemorrhages, she would have had to keep some rules that are outlined in the book of Leviticus but were interpreted to a pretty harsh degree by the time she comes on the scene. In her condition, uh, she would not have been allowed to touch anyone. She would not have been allowed to receive a hug or a high five or a fist bump or anything because in her tradition, you would have taken on the uncleanliness of the person that you touched. So she was isolated utterly imprisoned by her condition, away from community for at least 12 years. Not only that, every time she entered into a setting, a public setting, into somebody's home, she would have had to declare, using her voice, her condition. And she would have had to say these words, this word that I just can't imagine saying whenever we walk into a public place, unclean. She had to say that, pronounce that about herself when she walked into public places. And I picture her just kind of raising her arms like this and just making sure everybody can hear me. Unclean, unclean. Can you just put your hands up and just say unclean with me for a minute? Unclean. That feels icky. Like we don't want to do that. We, some of us may feel that way, especially if we've struggled with shame. We feel like, oh, everybody in the room knows that I'm unclean, that I've done these things or whatever. She actually had to declare that. Can you imagine just the pounding that that would put on your life. This is a slow beatdown of this woman's character, of her heart, of her willingness to connect with other people. Why in the world would you want to be in relationship with anybody if you're forced to walk into a place and just declare the darkest thing about yourself? She's in prison. Her chronic health conditions likely left her with very little energy. This is a little bit related to anemia. She didn't have enough blood. So her color was probably gone. She probably suffered from other illnesses as well. The text tells us that not only is she depleted physically, she's depleted financially. She spent a lot of money on doctors, lots of tests, lots of questions, no answers. This woman's trauma, unlike Jairus' trauma, is a slow burn. It's a slow beatdown. Have you ever experienced that? Can we relate to this, this slow beatdown? If you walked with someone through a long-term illness, cancer, any kind of infectious disease, things that just take a really long time to get through. If you get through them at all, you know this slow burn. If you've walked with someone through the aging process, an elderly person that you love, Alzheimer's, dementia, this is a slow burn. If you've got a stressful job and you just get used to the stress, you just kind of become accustomed to it, you still take a beating when you go into work, your boss is mean to you, whatever, you start to just feel that ebb down. And it's a slow burn. Addiction is like this. And what do we see this woman doing in the moment where she is depleted, where she is spent, where she is used up? She looks at her desperation and she goes, I got to do something about this. 
And what I'll say about her in a moment is it's not as much about her action as about her character that we need to pay attention to. She makes a move. She takes a step. And we applaud that. But it's her character that really brings into focus what we mean when we've been talking about desperation leading to restoration. That's true for Jairus, and it's true for the woman with hemorrhages. And we'll say this as we start talking about restoration. Jesus has a bigger plan for your restoration and my restoration. Whatever you're thinking of as your desperation, whatever you're thinking of as a place where you're experiencing some suffering and some trauma right now, the healing that you long for, the goodness that you're hoping for on the other side of that, it is bigger than you might think. It is better. It is more technicolor and wonderful than we could ever imagine. And this is the economy of the kingdom. What our tiny hopes might be, Jesus has something much bigger planned. Let me prove it to you. Let's go back to Jairus' story. How does he experience restoration? Remember, the worst has happened. His daughter has died. He mourns because his hope was what? His hope was for her healing. Get her better, Jesus. Heal this acutely. Bring this restoration that I can't bring for myself. What if Jesus' desire for him is for him to hope in something bigger than healing? What if healing wasn't enough? What if Jesus is looking at Jairus and saying, you don't need to see your daughter healed. You need to see resurrection. Resurrection's bigger than healing. This is an important detail that I want to highlight in verse 54 that involves touch. This will connect us to the story of the woman with hemorrhages as well. Listen to this. Jesus walks into Jairus' house. There is wailing. They are mourning. It is a dark moment. And he's said to them twice now, don't be afraid, this is going to be better, she's not dead, she's asleep. And I picture, maybe those of you that have daughters can picture this too, I picture walking into my daughter's room, and we have a very stereotypical like pink daughter's room, right? So there's lots of stuffed animals everywhere, and there's books on the floor, and you walk up to the bed, and there's this little body. And if you've ever been in the room with someone who's passed, It's a strange feeling because it's both holy and kind of scary at the same time. And you walk into your daughter's room. You see her laying there. She's laying on her back. Picture her hands are up. Her eyes are closed. The color is kind of gone from her body. Her skin's cold. There's no breathing. And everybody's watching. There's There's not a word in the room. As Jesus walks up and it says this, he took her by the hand. He reached out. Maybe he knelt down beside her bed and he put her hand in his hand and he felt the cold skin. And the text tells us, and there's a big old exclamation point on this, he called out to her, child, get up! And her spirit returned. This is bigger than healing. This is someone being brought back to life, friends. So don't just hope for healing, hope for resurrection. It may be darker and harder to get down where there is death, where there is pain, where there is suffering, but brand new life. Oh, man. A new identity, a new purpose. That is what Jesus has brought to her. This is the end of our thesis. Desperation leads to restoration, and restoration leads to new life, new hope. And in this case, it leads to a movement. Restoration leads to a movement. How do we know that? Because for the rest of her life, this girl is no longer known just as Jairus' daughter. She's no longer known as just this person who lived wherever she lived and was in this community and she went to school. For the rest of her life, when people come up to her and go, tell us your story. Where are you from? How'd you grow up? She'll say to them, 
you're not going to believe this, but I had this amazing thing happen to me. Or I got sick, and I was actually dead, and Jesus raised me from the dead. I can't explain it. All I know is I woke up, and he was telling me to get up, and I got up. That is an incredible testimony, and that is not about her. That is about the movement of the church, the declaration of things that must be true because the kingdom makes it so. And there's a really fun thing for the parents to do here, too. What are parents endlessly good at doing? We are endlessly good at talking about how awesome our kids are. From the now until the end of time, these parents are going to declare, our daughter was raised by Jesus. They're going to brag about that like all of us brag about soccer participation trophies. They are going to be so excited to tell, I'm serious, to tell people about what has happened to their daughter because she has been restored and they will start a movement. They will tell their friends. Those people will want to come to Jesus. They will want to find out what is going on with this rabbi can raise, who can raise the dead. A restoration has led to a movement and we are part of that movement. Now let's talk real briefly about the woman with hemorrhages. Her hope, right? So Jairus goes in with the hope of healing. The woman with the hemorrhages goes in with the hope of healing as well. But she has another hope. And we can infer this from the text. Her hope is to not be found out. She wants to sneak in there, get the healing that she needs from Jesus, and she wants to sneak away. Why? Because she's unclean. Because everybody in that crowd, if they recognized her, would know she was unclean. She's not supposed to be here. She's not supposed to touch people. What are you doing here? Get away from us. So she hopes, because of all the persecution that she's endured, to just slide in there quietly, get the healing she needs, and get away. And just like Jairus' daughter, the key is the touch. Remember, Jesus comes in and lifts up her little hand, and he touches her. And in this case, the woman with hemorrhages reaches out. I mean, picture if you've been in a crowd and you're trying to reach for someone, like picture like just straining and then straining a little bit more and then just at the end of your fingertips, you just catch it just a little bit of the cloak, the side of his garment, just a little piece of fabric, nothing, right? And power fills her and her hemorrhages stop. And her body experiences restoration. What has been wrong is made right. It is a moment of the kingdom. Because everything that is wrong and broken and creates tears, the scriptures promise us there will be no more tears in God's kingdom. There will only be restoration. There will only be things that work right. But then her hope isn't really answered, is it? Because she hopes to sneak away quietly. Listen to verses 46 through 48. Jesus said, somebody touch me. For I noticed that power had gone out from me. Her, this is her worst nightmare. She's like, I'm supposed to sneak in and sneak out. I'm caught. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people, all the people that would have known her as unclean, all the people that would have known her, someone you're not supposed to touch, you're not even supposed to be around her. She declared before all those people with all their dirty looks why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And then Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Can you imagine being caught like that? Can you imagine being in a crowd of people with those dirty looks looking at you like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And then all of a sudden, she takes a moment and she steps into something that she wasn't planning on. And her desperation has become a point of restoration for her because she's looking around at all these people staring at her. And she's healed now. She's no longer sick. That condition that she used to have to declare, she knows it. I'm done with that. I'm finished because of the power of Jesus. I got nothing to lose. I, I just need to tell the people what's been going on. Hey, I've been sick. Now I'm well. All I know is that Jesus did this for me. 
She's humble. She doesn't try to run away. She's honest. She tells the truth about what's happened to her. And she just confesses. She just, she's not able to run. These are the traits of someone who understands what it means to be in Jesus' family. When Jesus brings us in, when he says, you're mine, I welcome you into my kingdom, I welcome you into my community, he gives us the names of sons and daughters of the Most High God. And sons and daughters demonstrate the character of their parents, don't they? This woman demonstrates the character of Christ by being honest, by just proclaiming the truth of what she has seen. She bears his traits, and therefore it is totally appropriate for him to say to her, daughter, Your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. Friends, I long for us to be people who bear those traits of Jesus and who help others see his traits in our world because that's where this movement is spinning out even more. Desperation leads to restoration. Restoration leads to a movement. Who do you think was involved in this movement now for this moment, for this woman? Everybody in the crowd. Her entire community saw what had happened. They heard her declare what she said happened to her. They heard Jesus declare, daughter, you're mine. I'm with you. I'm for you. Don't you think that inspired them? Don't you think they took off going like, I can't believe Jesus would do this. This is amazing. I want to go out and do something similar in my community. How could I be a part of this mission and this ministry? It's amazing. Jesus inspires the crowd. He shows them mercy. He shows her mercy. And in a moment, a movement is launched. And again, friends, we are part of that movement today. Desperation and restoration. Trauma that we think should be the end of us instead is the beginning of God doing something incredible for us. And do we expect our desperation to be a great teacher? I don't often think this way about myself. This weekend, uh, I watched a movie called Darkest Hour. Have you guys seen this movie? It came out last year. Gary Oldman is in it. He actually won the Oscar for portraying Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain during the 1940s. Uh, Churchill is a really interesting figure. He was kind of a squirrely guy. He would sort of adopt political positions when it suited him. And he came to power because the other guy got kicked out for not being tough enough on the Germans. This was a moment when Great Britain was sort of teetering on the edge between are we going to fully engage with this war? Are we just going to kind of give our terms of surrender to the Germans? I mean, these were real conversations. And Churchill gets up, and in public, he says, we're going to fight. We're going to do everything we can to defend our country. We're going to do this. He is chief cheerleader for the British people. And in private, he's telling his confidants, I'm not sure we can win this war. We might be done. I don't know what to do. And so the movie goes on, and it shows the story of how he wrestles with his confidence. He wrestles with people's support in his own political party. He's trying to get stuff done. Then the invasion of Dunkirk happens. Remember the other movie that came out last year, Dunkirk, where these soldiers are trapped, they're isolated. The British don't know what to do. And so in this moment of crisis, Winston Churchill, in his desperation, does something that he'd only done once before in his entire life. He went to the subway. He goes on a ride in the underground in London. He says at the beginning of the movie, I tried getting on the subway early in my life and I got so confused I had to run away quickly. And so he goes to the subway and this is what he does. This is so beautiful. He sits down and he's dressed like Winston Churchill, you know, with the hat and the glasses and the cigar. So everybody knows who he is. And he asks the people, what do you want me to do? Do you want to keep fighting? Should we surrender? 
These are the real things I'm facing, you guys. And in his trademark way, you know, he's very winsome about it. He jokes with them. What, you've never seen the prime minister riding on the subway? Like, this is strange? And to a person, each of the people he talks to on the tube says, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. And a young girl at the very end turns to him and says, victory. Never stop until victory. In his desperation, Winston Churchill went to a place that he never went to. And he found restoration through the encouragement of his people, through the mandate to keep fighting. And he was able to lead the country to victory. He came to the end of his will. He came to the end of what he could make happen with the people around him. And his little kingdom was starting to crumble. And just like the people in our story, he had a choice. He could give in to the desperation. He could throw away his hope and he could give up. Or he could seek restoration. And in our case, as we follow Jesus Christ, when we choose to take part in his restoration, we're signing up for something incredible because our little kingdoms are designed to do one thing endlessly. Your kingdom and my kingdom were designed to do one thing over and over and over again and never get tired of it, and that is to surrender to the will of God, to surrender to God's kingdom. And we see that happening for Jairus when he breaks the barriers to go see this rebellious rabbi and find healing for his daughter, find new life for his daughter. We see this in the woman who should never have been in a crowd, who should have been declaring unclean the whole time. And instead she breaks through and she's restored. Friends, where would you like to see restoration in your life this week? Where would you like to see the hope of Christ break forth in a new and powerful way? Where are your hopes, my hopes, actually just kind of tiny? And Jesus has something much, much bigger to do. Far greater than we could ever have imagined. If you're looking for practical steps this week, slow down. Pay attention to when God is moving you toward a desperate place. And what is he teaching you through it? Take time to take stock of what he might be teaching you. Show up for worship. This is a place where you can be reminded of the kingdom and see its reality played out as we sing together. If you're really in a desperate place, tell somebody that you're hurting. Maybe it's time to step into a new relationship with a counselor. Maybe it's time to go back to meetings. Take those steps as God leads you in the week ahead and take them with courage. As I uh, invite Jessica and Bill and the band to join me back up here, I want to remind you guys that Josh, our prayer team coordinator, is going to be available in the back for prayer. So if you'd like to have someone pray with you, he will be back there uh, by the couches, and he would love to have the opportunity to pray and to pray over your places of desperation, your places of hope, your places of fear. And may God bless each of us and allow us to step into his bigger desires for our lives each day of the week ahead. Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, we thank you that you are the God who takes our simple hopes and dreams and shows us that you have so much more, abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. Thank you, God, for taking our expectations and saying, no, I got something way better for you. Thank you for challenging us to be more desperate, to be people who look to you first. When we are tempted in the week ahead to just default to our own training or use our wits or create a battle plan, may we instead come to you and say, Jesus, thank you for being with me in this process. What would you have me do? How would you have me live? How can I serve you?
And God, if we are here and we're not sure of our faith in you, whether we believe or if we're just checking it out, may this be a week where we give it a try. Where when we're faced with something that makes us feel like we're desperate, may we look to you and see the wonders that you would bring.